As you're turning, I will want to read to you something one of the members brought to my attention last Sunday from last Sunday's paper. Uh, this is a, a letter written by Kate Bowler, who is a um, assistant professor of uh, Christianity at Duke Divinity. So take it for what it's worth. <laughs> Come from Duke. Um, I get in my blood. I can't stop it sometimes. Um, but I, she has some interesting things to say, and especially in light of it being Super Bowl Sunday, last Sunday. She writes, when it comes to today's Super Bowl, three in ten Americans are betting on God. A new study by the Public Religion Research Institute found that one-third of the country believes that God plays a role in determining which team wins. And Americans are even more certain about the players themselves. The majority believe that God rewards individual athletes who are faithful to God with good health and success. This kind of thinking about faith and success follows a broader religious trend. Over the last 50 years, American Christians have gravitated towards spiritual explanations for why winners deserve their rewards. The default rationalization of good things happen to good people or everything happens for a reason, are no longer simply cliches. They are the theological bedrock for one of the most popular contemporary movements, the American Prosperity Gospel. Millions of American Christians now agree that faith brings health, wealth, and victory. This movement, which began in the Pentecostal revivals of the post-World War II years, has become a commonplace theological framework for how faith works to secure God's blessings. For the past eight years, I've studied the American Prosperity Gospel. Basically, it contends that believers must learn to speak positive words called positive confessions to unleash spiritual forces that move God to act. Faithful people can know that their prayers and actions are working by their effects. A healthy body, rising bank account, an ability to overcome life's obstacles. The pursuit of happiness is no longer simply an inalienable right. It is a divine mandate. When people say that God rewards certain teams or athletes, their opinions usually reflect a range of explanations from hard prosperity to soft prosperity for how people earn wins or losses. Hard prosperity draws a straight line between the believer's faith to his circumstances. Did a player tithe 10% of income? Did an unspoken sin block his prayers? When life does not go as planned, Christians learn to comb through their own histories to find the source of their problems. The Atlanta, tel Atlanta televangelist Creflo Dollar, himself a former college football star, urged his 30,000-member World Changers Church International to uncover the spiritual causes to their poverty, sickness, or failures. Stop making excuses, Dollar argued. You are the only one hindering your progress. When life's scoreboard looks grim, they have only themselves to blame. Soft prosperity loosely equates faithfulness and success, allowing for temporary setbacks on the steady march to victory. Joel Osteen, senior pastor of America's largest church, has made a career of encouraging people to embrace their identity as victors. His weekly television audiences of 7 million tune in to hear Osteen's message of unstoppable success. You were born to win. You were born for greatness. You were created to be a champion in life. When the Baltimore Ravens face off against the San Francisco 49ers, more and more Americans will be looking for something beyond skill or luck. 
They're looking for the unseen divine guarantee that separates the masses from the faith-filled few. The prosperity gospel dubs it favor. It's that feeling, explained Florida televangelist Paul White, that God is on your side. And as America's most watched sport is now punctuated by midfield players, heaven-directed touchdown dances, and a Tim Tebow-inspired bended knee, now officially trademark, this won't be the last Sunday when the country is looking for a divine way to predict a winner. Now, does that article come dangerously close to maybe how we think and how we feel? And maybe exposes, wow, um, does God care about who wins the football game or not? And is it determined by how good of a life we lived? When bad things happen, is because we did bad things. When good things happen, because we did good things. And the measure, the dangerous thing is that the measure of godliness is materials, happiness, is bank accounts, is health. That's the thing that is especially sinister, is that the measure of godliness is materials, things that will die and go away. And before long, God gets used as a heavily pez dispenser that if we treat him just right, then God will open up his mouth and up comes a goodie for us. God is now our servant and slave to measure and to serve our happiness and health. That is idolatry. And... If this researcher is correct, it is wrapping up most, a growing percentage of those who claim the name Christ. And that scares me. I want to direct our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 this morning. And if you see the title of the sermon, as we look at Green Pines, this church that is to be the church of the living God, to be a pillar and buttress of truth, the house, the family of God, we look quickly at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, he goes to chapter 4, and we realize very quickly that in a church, in a local expression, is both good and evil. And I don't want to speak about just the church in Ephesus. I think it's probably fitting for us to look at Green Pines. To know that there is good and evil within our church body membership. There's good and evil within our own heart. And there's good and evil within our membership. It happened in Ephesus. It happened in Jesus' inner crew. It happens here. And I pray that by the word of God, God will speak to our hearts through his spirit to help us clearly discern what is evil in our life and that we would remove ourselves from it and have it removed from us. I bring out the article just to let you know that it is prevalent and it is popular evil and it looks good. And it talks nice. 
And it talks religion. It bears the name Christianity. But it has undertones in it that deny God as our hope. But as merely a servant. God is not your servant and he is not our assistant. So with that, let's look at this passage. I just want us to look at the differences. And I'll bring out several differences between the good and the evil, between the godly and the satanic. Let's stand as we read 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. You may be seated. So we're going to look at the differences between the godly and the satanic. And it may not be quite as obvious as you might first think. It doesn't come in shades of red and shades of blue. It's not devil tells and halos. There's a little bit more to it. Much more subtle. And so, verse 1 Paul is saying to Timothy, young Timothy who's in Ephesus, he says, I want you to consider some things. Consider a prophecy made by the Spirit earlier. Now, when he says in verse 1 that the Spirit expressly says, he's not necessarily referring and citing a a scripture passage. He's not uh, quoting something that we see uh, in the Old Testament. He could be referring to something that God directly spoke through Paul in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul had gathered the elders together as he's on his way to Jerusalem and he gives them some last words saying that this will be the last time I'll be with you in person. And he says in Acts 20, verse 28 through 33, he says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men, speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So it may be that Paul is alluding to something the Spirit of God said through him, earlier in Acts 20, or he could be making a general general reference 
to Jesus' statement, such as we find in Mark 12, or Mark 13, verse 21 through 23, where Jesus prophesies that in the latter days there will be false prophets. Now, when he says in latter days or latter times, he's not referring necessarily to uh, when the Lord is coming back. He, in latter times, uh, referred to any period after Jesus' ascent into heaven. And so, the disciples themselves, the early church, considered that they were in the latter times because there's not anything else in the biblical prophecy that remains for the, uh, for the Lord's return. The Lord has ascended, the Holy Spirit has descended to be with uh, His people and to establish His reign. And so, this is the last period before the Lord comes back. And as such, He says, these are the latter times. And then He says, simply, some will depart from the faith. And so the first thing I want you to understand is that the difference between the satanic, the difference between the godly and the good and the evil is not found in our profession. The difference is not found in our profession. In other words, I'm not talking about the jobs we do. I talk about what we confess. Notice, he says, some will depart from the faith. Now, let me ask you, how do you depart from the faith unless you're first among those who are in the faith, who first profess the faith, okay? And he's referring to these who have come in the body and they professed Jesus as their Savior. They have made a confession. And I hope you understand that to be born in the kingdom of God, to be part of God's children, is not just a profession with your mouth. Now, we in our church believe that once you have Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, and He has entered into your life through the Spirit of God, that He will continue to work in your life to bring you to a completion in His hands. And you will not lose your faith. You will not lose your salvation because the salvation is born of God in your heart. Okay? God does it, not man. And so if God does it, man cannot undo it. Now, the big question is, has God birthed His Spirit in your life? Are you one of His? And all I'm bringing to your attention is that you're not His simply because you say that you are His. This is something Brother Jerry has shared with us, especially when we talk about being born of God. It's not just a confession with your mouth. These who were in the church of Ephesus had professed with their mouth. They were a part of their body and what he's saying is that they were a part but now they've departed and so a sign that we are not of God is that we do depart. That we do reject Christ as our Savior. Okay? When that happens, it is a sign that we are not His because if that happens, that surely would be uh, done with conviction of the Spirit that we will turn of our sin. And before we ever verbally uh, deal with it, you know before we ever verbally say it, we think it. And before we ever get to the point where we're saying we've been thinking it for a while, and as we think it in our hearts, God has already convicted us in our hearts for the thoughts that are therein. And so... Paul is saying some will depart from the faith. And so the difference is not found in our profession. So, let's read here. It says, how is it that this is happening? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, 
This lets me know that when people do leave the faith, it's not because they have been enlightened. When people leave the faith, it's not because there is more education and they know better. It is not because it's, it's not scientific anymore. And let's make know that at the heart, that underneath the skin of reason, the skin of science, the skin of enlightenment, the skin of education, is a more sinister flesh. That it is satanic. That it is demonic. It is, it is something that is going on in their life in which there is rebellion against God. They do not want God. They reject Him. And it comes out. And so it's not just enlightenment. There is the, the demonic teachings that are happening. Now, we've seen this before in Scripture. In fact, uh, in Luke chapter 22, verse 3, it talks about Satan entering into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Let me ask you, did, G, did Judas profess following Jesus. Yes, he did. He hanged out with them. He was with Jesus. But something happened in his heart where he turned against the truth of who Jesus is and it allowed Satan to work. We see this as well in Peter's life. In Peter's life, while they are in Caesarea Philippi, and Matthew 16, where, where, where Peter has just made this statement that, that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God has revealed this to you. And then you find just a little bit later, Jesus is talking about the cross and how he has to suffer and die. And Peter then takes upon himself to rebuke Jesus and says, don't talk such things. And then Peter gets rebuked by Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, Satan, depart from me. Whoa. Now, didn't Peter just make a profession? A confession revealed by God. Here's the point. Of, when we looked at this in Matthew, or Mark chapter 5, I want you to understand that demonic influence can happen in person's life. And the only, listen, the only safe Place exempt from demonic activity as far as inwardly in your heart is when you are under the authority of God's Spirit. When you are filled with the Spirit of God, there is not, it's not that you're going to roll your head around, you know, and, and talk weird ways, but there is demonic activity that can happen in your life. It's, you don't see much the demonic possession, that terminology in the Bible, we see demonizing that takes place. And so it could be that you're just reading the Bible, not submitted to the Spirit of God, not surrendering and confessing your sins and, and listening to God's Spirit, but you're reading the Bible and you come to it with your fleshly perspective and twisting around to fit your purposes. This is de demonizing that is happening in your life. The difference is not found in our profession. Satanic and godly could make some of the same professions. How can that be? I mean, Satan doesn't, Satan doesn't profess that Christ is Lord. Since when do we start thinking that Satan's going to tell the truth? What is he called? The great liar. Don't be shocked when Satan lies. Okay? 
So, notice, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Now, I believe at this time, he's not referring to demons. He's referring to people who have been influenced by demons. Who are being deceived and deceiving. In fact, you see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. He's referring to human individuals in 2 Timothy 3.13, and he says they are deceiving and being deceived. And so when they're devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, then they're listening to humans who are teaching things that are not of Christ, that are not lifting up God as God. Listen. When we hear things of, of such of, of that life and God is serving your end and that it's all about your health, all about your prosperity, when you're listening to the people like that, they're lifting that up, they're not professing Christ as your God, but Christ as your servant, you are listening to deceiving spirits. In Paul's day, they had human names and human faces. And he called them out by name. Joel Osteen continues, and while that he's taught, it just will reveal that he is a deceiving spirit. Creflo Dollar, if he continues, and what he is teaching, it just reveals that he is a deceiving spirit. You don't know, you know I don't say names often, but Paul did. I think it's biblically right here for us. Be careful what they teach. The difference is not found in our profession. Just because we have the name Christian or we're a member of a church. 1 John 4, verse 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. I think if you look at chapter 3, verse 16, which is right before this, he is bringing out some of the test of godliness, or test of what is God, that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, that God was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, taken up in glory. My wife was visited yesterday. It was yesterday by uh, our friendly Job's witnesses. Um, they, they're concerned about us. They, they visit us probably about the fourth time. Um, and they just are interested. Um, so my wife opened the door, and, um, and her, um, her statement was, or testimony was, I used to be a Baptist. Um, I don't know why she brought that up. I've never told her that we're Baptists. Um, I think she figures most folks are Baptists, and most of their people who are Jehovah's Witnesses used to be Baptist. And she said, I used to be a Baptist, and I would listen to whatever the preacher said, you know. But then I started reading the Bible and started thinking for myself. My wife responded correctly, I'm a Baptist, but I also read the Bible for myself. 
i.e., just because you're Baptist doesn't mean you don't read the Bible. <laughs> and so, she started talking about the, the father, and uh, she made mention, well, you notice where it says that, that he begets his son, that, that he is a son, but he calls Jesus son, not God. My wife said, well, I, I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, you're one of those. <laughs> you believe in the Trinity? As if, where you check your brain at? Very simply, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that God was manifest in the flesh by the name Jesus. They do not believe that Jehovah is Jesus. According to this passage, 1 Timothy 3, 16, according to 1 John 4, 1 to 3, it is not of God. They are false prophets. Why is this... I mean, Pastor, I mean, you're always talking about love, and this just seems not loving. I mean, you're lifting up Christ, and now you're talking bad about people. The difference between good and evil, God and Satan, is a difference of eternity. It is the most loving thing I can do is to say, this is not of God. Read it for yourself. Read the Bible. It's not of God. Beware. Beware. I love you because I, I want, I, therefore I want you to know this. And if it means there are false wolves and you need to know them by name, then that's a loving thing to do. The difference is not found in our profession. Be very careful what you are going to for your instruction in the Word of God. Those authorities that you look to, and they're authorities because you allowed them to be authorities, that you look to, do they teach that God is God and that uh, godliness is marked by suffering? Do they teach Jesus is Christ? They bring out the Holy Spirit as being God? Do they conform with the Scripture? Even in our own body, there will be those, and there are those, who are merely counting on their profession, but their authority in life is not the Word of God. They will speak about history. They will speak about tradition. They will speak about what mama taught them and what uh, their background is and what seems right. But we don't want to know what seems right. We don't know what you think. We don't want to know what your parents thought. We want to know what the Bible says. The difference is not found in profession. Therefore, be careful who you listen to within this church. Just because they're within this church does not mean they're the ones necessarily who need to be shaping your thinking. The Word of God shapes your thinking. And if they teach the Word of God, then that has value. If they're lifting up Christ and trusting in Him, then that has value. As you listen to me, make sure that I'm teaching the Word of God. I'm held accountable to Christ and His Word. The difference, as we keep on reading is not found in our language. This is verse 2. 
these deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The difference is not found in language. In other words, these people who were in Ephesus, they were not sincere. They taught like everyone else talked. But they lied. It was putting out things that they thought were acceptable, but did not express their heart. I knew how to do You know, it doesn't take long to do this. I've mastered this. I grew up doing this. I know how to talk right. I know to bow ahead at the right time. I know when to say amen. I know when to stand up. I know when to sing. And I know how to talk spiritual. Sometimes, the ones who talk most spiritual are the ones you have to watch out. I found that it's the ones who gush about me. They're perhaps the most dangerous. They come in and they talk all spiritual, but their lives don't match. Their thoughts don't match. The difference is not found in a language. These have insincerity of liars. They portray themselves as pious, faithful followers, but they are wearing a deceitful mask. They've come to believe even their own lie. And this is where it's most dangerous, is that we've lied to ourselves so long that we even believe our own lie. Whose consciences are seared, cauterized, couple ways of looking at this. I believe that this makes most sense with the context to say that this person has been branded. Been branded. It's not so much of, of it does have that idea of, of that we no longer listen to our, our consciences, but it's been marked by Satan's marks. It bears Satan's ideas. Romans 16, verse 17, 18 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create, op- create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. Sometimes it's the nicest folks in church. Sometimes it's the nicest folks in church. I'm just basing on what Scripture says. Romans 16, 17, 18 says that. Smooth talk. Good salespeople. But they're insincere. God knows your mind. He knows the lies you're telling yourself and telling others. If there is conviction... It is of God because God knows your heart. We go on to verse 3. Notice these, these false teachers. They're forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods. Let me just say the difference is not found in our abstinence. The difference is not found in our abstinence. It's not found in what we avoid. It's not vine found, the difference isn't found by those things that we do not allow ourselves. In that day and time, there were those who were saying, you know what, the, 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 mirror, the flesh is evil, so it's all about the spirit, so let's not entertain our flesh, let's not get married. 
uh, that just involves too much of our flesh. Let's not eat, uh, which that cannot be a reproducing uh, theology. Uh, everyone's going to die, and there's no children. All right? Um, but nonetheless, people were buying into it. And that if you eat these foods, then, then now it's, it's wrong and you are less of a Christian because you, you eat these foods and, and now that you're married. And so the, the celibate life is a higher plane of spirituality. And if you really want to get in a higher plane of spirituality, then you don't eat these things. Paul simply, but these are the things God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In other words, when you know and believe the truth, there is a freedom to be able to eat these things, and you do so in thanksgiving to God. and say, God, thank you, this is good. This is good. This, the issue of food was one that he dealt with considerably amount of time. Jesus dealt with uh, that we see. Mark chapter 7, verse 14 and 23, referring to the dietary laws. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside a person that is going into him that can defy him. But the things that come out of a person are what defy him. And when he entered the house and looked at the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all food clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things came from within and they defile a person. In other words, I don't eat something and it says, oh, because I ate that, now I'm greedy. I ate that, now I've, I've got murder in my heart because I ate that. Now, he says, no, that, that's, that's born in our heart. It comes from out. So basically what he's saying, and we see this in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8 and 9. Basically, eating is no biggie. It's not a big deal. Unless it causes harm, spiritual harm, to another believer. So to say that you're going to avoid these things and make your life spiritual, and you mandate that, that's not of God. That's demonic. This is the danger of legalism that takes us down this road where we say, if we avoid these things, we become more godly, we become more spiritual, become more Christ-like because we don't have these things in our life is of Satan. Prosperity gospel, legalism. If I put these two things together, I'm afraid that they would capture much of the thinking of American church life. Rare is the thinking of it's all in the gospel. Jesus Christ is sufficient for my sins. And I trust Him wholly. He is God in flesh. So that's the idea Verse 4 and 5. Everything created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I started thinking about that. It brings a whole new meaning of just giving thanks to God before you pray, before you eat. It's the attitude of thankfulness to say, God, you made this. Now, I struggle with this because I, I thought, well, God, did you make Cheetos? 
And we laugh, but then there's more sinister things like, God, did you make marijuana? <laughs> We're not laughing, are we? And then I quickly resolved, well, all right, Cheetos, man-made. <laughs> there's, there's no Cheetos trees. All right. Be careful what we make. Marijuana. There is a misuse. A misuse of, I'm going to absorb this, I'm going to eat. I don't know if anybody eats it. Um, but it's no longer for my body. Now I'm doing it for other reasons. Identity. Escape. Hope. Good time. When we eat to escape, to have hope, to ensure that we have a good time, are we bringing something more to food than what was meant? Food can be God. Marijuana has been misused for other than that. I thought, you know, well, what about a castor plant? <laughs> castor plant? That's where poison comes from. Beautiful flower. Eat the seed, bad things happen. Death. So those who like to argue marijuana is good because God made it, well, hey, eat some castor. You're going to take that argument? Then what holds you back from eating anything? Is a misuse of it. A misuse of it. There's much more verses that speak to those. Colossians 2, 16 through 19. Romans 14, verse 6. Romans 14, 20 through 23. Acts 10, 15 through 16. All dealing with issues of food and that we're not better for eating or not eating. Now, this week begins Lent. Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. For most of us, that's foreign to us because uh, we're, a lot of us grew up Baptists. And we just rejected that along with Catholicism. But actually, some pretty good things about Lent. I'd encourage you to look into it. It's 46 days total, especially 40 days, but they don't include Sundays because those are many Easter's. Every Sunday we celebrate Easter, so it's not part of the, 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 the process. It's a celebration, but it's to build up to Easter and to uh, use that time to focus on what Christ will accomplish on the cross. And, and so I, I'd, I'd encourage you to do it. But the idea is that you, there's something you, you sacrifice. But listen, you're not a better Christian because you did that. So let, what is the difference? Verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. You know why I just said all I just said that seemed harsh and mean? Because the Bible says that if I do that, I'm a good servant of Jesus Christ. That word is literally deacon. I'm a good deacon of Jesus Christ. It's not referring to the office, but a servant. I serve Christ. We are to serve Christ. So I put this thing continuously. We continuously put this before you. Now, what makes a good servant of Christ Jesus? Not just putting these things, but then he talks about several describing actions of what makes a good servant of Jesus Christ. So if you will, we've talked about satanic, evil, and that it's not discerned just in 
your language, your profession of, of, of faith, that it has, uh, when you take away from Christ and you start adding on that you've got to do these extra things to be, to be a Christian, then you're, you're taken away. You deny Christ. But then what makes someone Christ-like? What makes them godly? What, what, what is good? Well, you'll be a good servant of Christ being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. The difference, listen, the difference is found in what nourishes us. The difference is found in what nourishes us. That, that word being trained is literally the word nourishing yourself. You will be a good servant if you nourish yourself in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. What do you feed upon in your heart? What gives you strength and sentences for thinking, for your expectations and dealing with disappointments? What do you feed upon? You know that old saying, you are what you eat. That's definitely true spiritually, mentally. When you take your time and it's filled with trash from TV, trash from the internet, and trash from the books that you read and the, and the, the stuff you listen to, guess what you're nourishing yourself on? It's very discernible. What do you spend the most time thinking upon? What are you putting upon yourself to think about? It's, it's very easy to figure out. What are you nourishing yourself with? I was asking... Uh, just with my wife the other day, uh, yesterday, we were thinking, what's the first thing you think of when you wake up? Hers was coffee. <laughs> Mine is, what time is it? <laughs> but somewhere along the way, to train yourself to say, I want to be nourished this day by words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. This is the gospel. Words of faith and good doctrine. This is why it's so important to have daily times in the Bible in which you are surrendered to God's Spirit. Because daily time for this lady to visit my house in the Bible didn't help unless she was surrendered to God. To pray, God, give me discernment in what I read. Help me to apply this in my life. Show me how it reveals you, how it reveals Jesus, and how it reveals my life in relationship to you. Those are the questions you ask. Doctrine. The truths of God. What is your only hope in life and death? What is God? How many persons are there in God? How and why are you made? How do you glorify God? What does the law require? What is the law expressed in the Ten Commandments? And what is, what is each one of those saying? What has, who is Jesus? Who is the Holy Spirit? What has Jesus done? What did He accomplish on the cross? How are you, we believers today? What is the hope of life as a believer? Do you know the answers to these questions? These are doctrine questions. For this reason... We go to small group. We go to Sunday school class. Men, I've asked a few of you, I'm, I'm going to start this Saturday on Saturday mornings at 7.30, where we're going to start teaching how to read God's Word. We did this a number of years ago. We're going to do it again. There's quite a few men who haven't got that. 
How do we read God's Word? We're going to do it two Saturdays a month, first and third Saturday, 7.30 in the mornings. First one this Saturday. But I warn you, I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to continue on. I'm going to ask you to memorize doctrine, to know God's Word, to know the faith, to be able to explain it to yourself. You've got to nurse yourself. And you've got to nourish others. Why am I doing the men? Because I'm counting the men to teach the women. To teach their families. How to read the Word of God. To know doctrine. The difference between Christ-likeness, godliness, evil, and satanic, demonic activity is what nourishes us. Being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you've followed. So therefore, because we're nursing in that, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly miss, irreverent, godly, or godless rather, religiously bankrupt things. Silly miss. So it's not that I'm discussing these things. I'm not going to discuss various details of this. I'm just going to ignore it. I'm not going to take my time to deal with the intricacies of it. Just say, that's wrong. Let me focus on Christ. And who he is, the words of faith and good doctrine. So let me just share with you the second difference. The, the, the difference between the good and the evil. The godly, Christ-like, is, and, and that which is not, is found in how we nourish ourselves, but it's also found in whom we hope. The difference is found in whom we hope. Notice what it says, rather train yourself for godliness. Godliness means to seek after God. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And so he now he's bringing an argument as to why we're training ourselves. Training yourself is this idea of, of athletic gymnasium. This is where, where the word we get the gymnasium comes from this word. Alright? So spend some time in the spiritual gym. Alright? Why? Because godliness is value of every way. Bodily training is good. It has some good value. Uh, you, you, to put your efforts toward it. But even more, spiritual health. Godliness, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So bodily exercise is good for this life and this life alone. Because it doesn't matter how many miles you run a day and how healthy you eat, it's inevitable you're going to die. There's no escaping it. It's just when you're going to die and maybe how you're going to die. Some of you might die running. <laughs> Alright? So, spiritually, as you train yourself, it has difference in how we live life now. And when we die, it becomes even more valuable. What do you have in life that has value at your deathbed or five seconds after? What are you investing in that has value then? Now, the difference is found in whom we hope. Well, so what's the point? He says, well, well all of it holds promise, our godliness has promise for the present life and the life to come. And he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving to full acceptance. For this we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people. So the point of godliness is that you have your hope set on Him. So, when you were physically training, we had my first time out running with the girls this past weekend. We're, we're training for a black belt, and um, it's a little demanding, and uh, we have to run 
a certain distance by a certain amount of time. And so we got to go running on our trails. First time I ever went running with them. It was fun for me. Um, I don't know if it was fun for them. I, I think they might differ with that. But along the way, I'm trying to to share the things I've learned about physical training. And I, and I just, along the way, I don't know if they're listening to me at all, but I'm, as we're running, I'm just saying, you know, when you're running or when you're doing exercise, there's always a battle and you're always fighting. And you're not fighting anybody else. You're fighting yourself as you exercise. And, and the fight is between, I want to quit. I want to stop. This is stupid, silly, foolishness. Sit me on the couch. There's that voice. And then there's the voice that says, no, this is worth it. This is worth it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to finish it. I'm going to go to the end because there's value in this. And so there's always the battle between these two that goes on. And so it's constant that you go back. And I'm trying to tell them these things and, and say, you know, just give yourself short goals and, and just all the strategies of, of doing physical exercise. Well, Understand that when there's spiritual training, there's a battle within yourself where it says, this is stupid, this is silly, this is foolish, I need to stop, I need to, you know what, there's a much easier way of living. But then there's another argument that comes in that says, no, it's worth it, there's value, there's something I'm holding on to, there's something I treasure, there's something I want more than the ease of my life. And so when physically we're exerting ourselves, we're saying, there's something we want more than comfort. Anytime we see the Olympics, it is an indictment. When I see the efforts of, the, of these athletes, and it's not that they're just not smoking, they're not drinking, and thinking, okay, I'm going to an Olympic event. No, it's, it's not just what they don't do, it's what they do do, and how they uh, have rigorous schedules where they beat their bodies so they can obtain a prize, earthly. And I think, do I not have a greater prize? Is there something I should not be treasuring more in my life? And how is it I don't sacrifice to, uh, to desire God? So here's the thing. What it comes down to, when we talk about our hope, that, that is found in whom we hope, it's found in what we treasure, what we desire, what we long for. And so, why is it important for us to nurture ourselves spiritually in the words of faith? Because it's a battle in every one of your hearts. What do you want? There's a battle, and I know that you're going to be an, uh, faced with thousands of arguments this day as to why we should not love God. And they won't say that. You shouldn't love God. You shouldn't love God. It's going to be, love this, love this, love this. Last night, I was at an awards deal uh, ceremony, um, and there, the folks were getting awards for various things and students and, uh, and athletic uh, uh, achievements, and, and uh, I was just seeing everybody were all dressed up. And, and I just, as I drove away from home, I drove away to home, there's this little thing in my heart, in my mind, that identified. That, I sense, has pulled me from desiring Jesus. I identified it. My, my love for Jesus has lessened from this event. And to say to God, God, I see that. Thank you for revealing it to me that it has had an impact of a little pull in my heart. God, forgive me for desiring something like that, something so silly and trivial compared to you. Forgive me, God. Give me your spirit again. Give me a heart passion to love you again. Let it be greater than it was before this event. I think the great 
I guess the great tragedy is that we don't have that voice. That voice has been so quieted that when we go and experience things that is pulled away from our heart love for Jesus Christ, we don't even hear it. We don't even recognize it. Pray for God to bring it back. To why, why did I share Psalm 42 and Isaiah 53? So you would know again what God has done for you. His love for you this day for your sorrows. Why is it important? It's to cultivate your love that your hope would be set on that love. To desire Him to say that I want God more than and you fill in the blank with anything that comes in this life. The difference is found in whom we hope. And so I train myself for godliness. I sacrifice because I want God more than... And listen, the greatest things that will endanger God is God-like stuff. Like church. Family. A good name or a good testimony. Be careful that your heart is cultivated for love. So, yeah, there was the game yesterday that was horrendous, uh, Miami and UNC. Um, but there, the coach made the statement, or it was shared, somewhere in halftime when UNC was getting trounced by Miami. Basically, he had, the coach of Miami had said, who's going to be more motivated? You know UNC is motivated. Can we match their motivation and have greater motivation? And the answer was yes. So let me ask you, when it comes to serving the Lord, loving Him, who's motivated? Who's motivated? Satan comes in and says, let me please give you good things to be motivated toward. The Holy Spirit says, be motivated toward God. Love Him. Notice, Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive. There's no way of defining those two words without saying it's going to sap your energy. You're going to be worn out. You can't toil, you can't strive without wearing yourself out. But for what are we wearing ourselves out? For God. Because we have our hope set on the living God. The difference is found not in whom we hope, but the difference is found in the sacrifice of our hope. The sacrifice of our hope. What has Christ sacrificed to be our hope? Christ died on the cross to be our hope. He has said that we are His treasure. I was reading this morning how God had engraved my name, our name upon His palm. He he loves us. He treasures us. He has sacrificed to be our hope. And so we say to God, God, you've done this for us. Let me make much of you. Let me love you. Let me treasure you. Let me sacrifice for you, my hope. What have we sacrificed for Christ? It's not the sacrifice for Christ that saves us. It's the sacrifice of Christ that shows our salvation. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, this is not teaching that all people are saved What it's teaching is that God has salvation for all people. 
1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man in Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. His sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for all people, but those who believe are the ones of which salvation is effective toward. Those who believe. As I look in our church, and as God looks at every one of our hearts, He knows there's good and evil in our life. But what's nourishing you? God is not deceived by your profession of faith. God is not deceived by the language you express. God is not deceived by the facts of what you merely don't do. But what is that which nourishes us? Is it Christ? Is it the gospel? What is our hope? Is it Christ, the gospel, the savior of all the world? And how have we sacrificed for that hope? It's not whether or not you were sincere when you prayed a prayer. It's not whether or not you understood all that the gospel meant, whatever the time that you professed Christ as your saving Lord. It is what I've shared here. What are you presently nursed by? What are you hoping in? Because the only way you can hope in Christ and be nourished by the gospel is if there's repentance in your life. Because your default setting is to hope in something else and be nourished by something else. That's why repentance comes in to say, I want Christ. I want God. Church, Green Pines, are we a collection of people who have been wondrously saved by Jesus Christ to the point that it changed our heart's goal for Jesus. Not your reputation for Jesus, but Jesus. That's the question. God knows your heart. Humble yourself. Let Jesus reign. Let's pray.